pro tip here is if you have a baby with you or a child under, let's say, three years old, they basically are a free pass outside of all of the RapiScan. They never put the children through the RapiScan, which probably should tell you something too, right? They don't want to put little kids in those RapiScan machines. So they say, all right, mom and dad, move to the side. We'll put you through the old fashioned one. That's just a little gate you go through and then you get a little pat down. So yeah, if you want to have, uh, you know, the, uh, the VIP treatment through security, also carrying a baby with you is a bonus. Morning. Welcome back to the show, Radical Health Radio listeners. Today, we're talking travel and how to hack travel in the best possible way, how to navigate the airport, how to navigate menus, how to navigate jet lag, how to adjust to your new time zone in the smoothest fashion possible so you can maximize the time at your new location and how to really enjoy your trip because we know that travel comes with unique challenges and unique benefits. New cuisines, new cultures, how to navigate your food choices so you can enjoy it without sacrificing your whole health. So this one's fun if you are adventuring or traveling or you know somebody that is traveling this summer and they're going on a beautiful trip to Europe or somewhere adventurous like that, then send them this podcast and share this podcast so they can learn how to manage that the best way so they can get the most fun out of life and also stay radical and protect their health in the process. And of course, we have our callers on the show. Two questions today. One about the ApoE4 allele in the brain and its increased risk of dementia and what can we do with animal-based diet to mitigate some of those risks and then the classic insulin-resistant elephant in the room. What can we do from an animal-based perspective and uh, really speeding up this process to get back to insulin-sensitive, thriving, and optimal radical health? Thanks for joining us. Without further ado, let's talk travel. Hello, Radical Health Seeker. Welcome back to the show. Today, we're discussing one of my personal favorite topics, everything travel. More specifically, how to travel and still live your radical life and not sacrifice your radical health. So travel entails a lot. It's obviously adventure. But if we're talking long distance travel, we've got challenges with long time sitting on the plane, plane food, circadian rhythm disruptions, adjusting to new time zones. We got a lot going on when we think of travel. And hopefully this podcast will equip you with some tools that if you do have some travels coming up this summer, long distance or short distance, that you've got some ideas and frameworks to work with so that you can travel, have adventure, have fun, find balance without completely sacrificing your goals and also not driving yourself bloody crazy around the perfectionism that can come with worrying about every bite of food or every nuance or every stressful, rest, unrestful night of sleep because adjusting to a new time zone, hotel rooms, and all of that fun stuff. So if you've listened to my story in the past and you go way back at the beginning of this podcast or you followed me on Instagram or whatever, you'll know that my background has a lot of travel in it. My wife and I were backpackers for the best part of four years, so we've done a lot of the planes, trains, and automobiles. We've done a lot of the long distance travel, the buses, all of that stuff. And I've been a health conscious guy for a long time. So this is something I've been thinking about. It's something I've been adjusting to and developing frameworks around for quite some time now. And this is fresh on my mind today recording this topic because as we sit and record this podcast, I'm only a few days removed from getting back from a international trip back to the UK where I went home to visit family in England and also spending some time in Spain. So obviously big time differences, six or seven hours, lots of travel, this time with a toddler, so that adds to the fun of it all. So uh, let's dive in, shall we? 
So the thing that I want to really focus on when you think about travel is this uh, almost cliched saying, but it, 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 it will carry you a long way, which is failing to prepare is preparing to fail. A little bit of prep when you are getting ready for your travel day will go a long way because we all pretty much know that the food choices in the airport are not going to be the most aligned with an animal-based diet. You're probably almost certainly going to be exposed to seed oils. It's fast, it's cheap stuff, it's low quality. So one of the main things you can do is set yourself up for success. Like I just did this the other day, again, very fresh on my mind. I'd cooked up, I was cooking up uh, dinner for my family and I cooked up an extra steak, which I sliced and put in a little Ziploc bag and I cut up a bit of extra pineapple. And now that means that if I get hungry when I'm at the airport, that I have something to go to instead of looking for the less worst option, which is about the best you can hope for in the airport. Now there's nuances here around if it's short, travel and it's not super long distance and you know that once you get to your destination you can find something like you're gonna land in Austin and it's only a two-hour flight and the travel day is only four hours that maybe you intentionally choose to just fast for that time frame you save yourself some money you save yourself some calories you save yourself some inflammation and it's a good time to just dip in a little bit to that metabolic flexibility but as the travel days get longer and as the time without food gets longer, and as those fasting windows would have to get longer, there could be a case to be made that that would be too stressful, seeing that travel is quite stressful on the body too. So the caveat through all of this is it's going to kind of depend. It's a yes, no, it depends, maybe situation, depending on the length of travel, how many time zones are you crossing, are you going east or are you going west, and also where are you at on your personal journey. But always failing to prepare is preparing to fail. So a little bit will go a long way. You know, prep yourself some up, cook some burgers, um, take your heart and soil supplements with you, get up some fruit. That is the one thing you can usually find in the airport. If you're in a pinch, you can usually find some bananas or maybe a juice spot or something like that. But always have an eye on preparation because as you're getting ready for travel and it's stressful and you're trying to find the passports and you're micromanaging all of these other things, usually food is the thing that will slip through the cracks and then you'll be left with less than desirable options in the terminal. But once we get you know, into the the travel we're moving there we're getting to the airport one of the things that i always like to do is just understand the cost of travel from a movement perspective is an awful lot of stillness right it's cramped it's it's sitting inside under artificial lights in the terminal building a couple hours if not three hours before your flight then it's getting on a plane sitting in a giant pressurized coke can flying through the sky squashed in between people or wedged up against the window seat and again a lot of stillness a lot of just static and you're not very grounded and you're not getting much natural light and you're getting recirculated air. So something that's very important is if you have time in your schedule before that flight to kind of maximize those benefits before with a good morning routine and some grounding and some movement, always try and front load that. But if you don't, because the flight is early or the flight is at the end of the day, is to use the airport as a chance to get in a lot of movement. One of the biggest kind of missed steps I would say that people make when traveling, especially health conscious people, is they get to the airport and they find their gate and then they just sit down for a couple hours before the plane. You could just walk around the airport terminal for a couple of hours and rack up 10,000 steps easily and really offset a lot of that stillness that you are now going to be forced into doing because of the kind of uh, the, the, the travel in and, in and of itself. So I would just continue to think about all the ways that you can increase movement. So whenever I check in, I get through security, I am just walking. I'm just walking up and down the terminal. Sometimes if I'm there early, I'll do 10 laps of the terminal building. Sometimes if I'm a little short on time, I won't get that chance to do that much movement. Another thing that you can always think about when it comes to movement 
is some gentle mobility. Uh, I am maybe a little more feral than the average person, and I don't mind being the weird guy at the airport, you know, doing a stretch in the corner. But you can almost always find, regardless of how busy the airport, a gate that is quiet, a gate that doesn't have anybody in it at the end of the terminal. And you can go and put your bags down and get down on the floor and you can do some hip 90-90 or you can do some forward falls or you can drop into a downward dog or you can just drop into a deep squat and move and mobilize a little bit. Something that is, again, there to offset the fact that you're going to be sitting in a very flexed position with poor posture for the next few hours. If you can't do any of that before because maybe you didn't prep efficiently and you're really tight on time and you're basically sprinting through the airport like a madman to make your plane, then always backload this stuff for when you land to offset the movement, uh, the stillness and the movement deficit by getting some movement in when you land. Now, depending on the time of the flight, and depending on where it is in the day and depending on whether it's international travels, we have to think about this uh, stress element of switching time zones because your body has these tightly regulated circadian clocks. Every cell on your body has it. If you're doing longer travel, if you're traveling east, you're usually going to be sh like shortening the day. So if I, when I went from the east coast of America to England, when I landed, it was six hours ahead. That's usually a little less stressful on the body because you've basically just got to stay up to get yourself to uh, the bedtime in the local time zone to then hopefully have a restful sleep and make yourself wake up in the local time zone and then implement these healthy habit behaviors that entrain your circadian clocks to the local time zone as quickly as possible. So when you get there, get outside. Get outside in the sun. I'm in England. There's not that much sun a lot of the time. It can be very gray and cloudy, but there's still a lot of photons in the air when you get outside and you get that natural light on your skin. And that is how you entrain those circadian clocks to adjust to the new time zone quicker than if you just stayed inside. Bonus points for grounding always, because if you can think of grounding almost like plugging into the earth plugging into the environment and picking up information that will attune you to those circadian clocks again and regulate yourself to make the jet lag a little smoother of a transition now when you're coming back west it's often a little trickier because a lot of the times you'll be flying through the day stretching the day out very long and landing late at night so you want to sleep on the plane if possible and all of that fun stuff but when you land is trying to always get yourself in the mindset wherever you're traveling of getting in the local time zone as early as possible so as soon as you get on the plane i would be setting your watch uh, or, or just setting your mind to get into that time zone so if it's five hours ahead or five hours behind and now start to think about the local time zone at arrival and what would be going on at those times so if you know that it's dinner time at local time zone, but for you now in this new weird time zone that you've adjusted to is two o'clock in the morning, well, realistically, you wouldn't be eating at two o'clock in the morning on average, but you want to now start in training the body's clocks and behaviors to the local time zone, not to the time zone that you have locally adjusted to. So that means then looking and saying like, okay, well, it's now you know, nighttime or roughly dinner time in my local behavior. So let me have my dinner and let me adjust to that new time zone. And these things will all help again to just smooth it because we know that, you know, poor sleep is such a big stressor and it's the big challenge of long haul travel. And just doing this and, and, and traveling with my family, the first night was a little tricky when we arrived home and my son woke up at three o'clock in the morning wide awake because that was nine o'clock in England and that's the time zone the, he'd adjusted to. So that entire next day, what we did was basically spend all day outside, got lots of light information and training him back to the local time circadian clock, let him play bare feet in the grass a whole bunch. And by that following day, 
he was back to normal. Around 7, he got really sleepy at the dinner table. We went to bed and he slept all the way through to 6 a.m. And it was pretty much done in one day. Now, if you look at some of the literature around stress of travel and jet lag, they say for every hour of difference in time that it takes around 24 hours of behavior change to match you to that circadian clock. So in theory, if it was six hours difference at the local time zone, you need about six days, according to the literature, to adjust to that new time zone optimally. And I think you can cut that number in half, if not even more, by practicing some of these things that we're talking about. And, and predominantly, that's going to be the light and the grounding at the local time zone. And this sounds so simple, but it's, it's something that a lot of people miss. We just live largely indoor lifestyles. And depending on where we travel, hopefully you're going to sunny places and you want to get outside. But the key thing that I would encourage you to do wherever you land is to just force yourself on that first day to get up as close to sunrise as you possibly can and get outside and spend at least 10 minutes outside getting that sun in your eyes and on your face to set your clock and then adjust yourself to the eating patterns in the local time zone. Because another thing that entrains the circadian clocks is also food. So eat a breakfast at that local time zone, even if you're not terribly hungry, and then get on that regular pattern so it will smooth your uh, landing, let's say, so you have an easier transition so you can enjoy more of your vacation because there's nothing worse than being on vacation and being groggy and needing a nap pushed through a little bit so you can adjust. And of course, when you come back, coming back off vacation can sometimes be downy enough because you, uh, you know, I've got to go back to real life and all that stuff. And it's going to be extra hard when you are really tired and underslept. So really be focusing on these behaviors so you can smooth that turbulence. Now, going back to the airport for a minute, when we're in the airports and we think about, you know, being ungrounded, all those things I've just spoke about and the stress that comes with it. One of the pro hacks, depending on how much of a crazy you want to be, is to understand that there can be a lot of radiation in airports. You're going through these airport scanners, the rapid scan thing that you stand in and you have to do this and it scans. You can always, and I've done this numerous times, I've been doing this for the last few years that I've been flying, is opt out of the rapid scan and opt for a body tap or a search. Again, if you are super tight on time, you might not want to do this because sometimes they can, they see you as a little bit of an inconvenience. Sometimes they'll move you to the side and they'll say, okay, and a TSA officer will be with you when they get to you. And sometimes I've had to wait an extra five to 10 minutes for that, but it's worth it to me because I don't want to go through this, you know, shoot of, you know, curious radiation. I'm not sure exactly how that's going to make me feel. And we're not really sure how that's doing it, but I can kind of practice the cautionary principle here that if I have the option to not do that and to not be exposed to a lot of that, well, why not take it? So if I have an abundance of time, I'm always going to opt for the pat down. I get a free massage in the process and I don't need the radiation. A pro tip here is if you have a baby with you or a child under, let's say, three years old, they basically are a free pass outside of all of the rapid scan. They never put the children through the rapid scan, which probably should tell you something too, right? They don't want to put little kids in those rapid scan machines. So they say, all right, mom and dad, move to the side. We'll put you through the old fashioned one. That's just a little gate you go through and then you get a little pat down. So yeah, if you want to have, uh, you know, the uh, the VIP treatment through security, also carrying a baby with you is a bonus. So opting out for all of that, what we're doing here when we're trying to think about these things, again, preparing to fail is failing to prepare and bringing your own food and opting out of the rapid scan and going for the body and then, you know, movement and grounding. We're trying to minimize the stressful effects of travel because it is quite stressful. But then when we get to our location, 
and hopefully we're less stressed because we're on vacation. We can switch into holiday mode. And I guess the, the, the point that I wanted to talk about now is what you do after the travel. You get through this, you, you're on the long haul flight, you, you survive, you made it, now you're on vacation and you're ready to get stuck in. You're ready to do some sightseeing. You're ready to go out and enjoy the culture. But if you're like me and where I was for a long time, that can also present its own unique stresses because we go from being this very health conscious person who's got a lot of control over all of these inputs. We've got a beautiful morning routine and we know what we like to eat for our meals and we know that we live in a seed oil free environment. And all of a sudden we're in this new city where we have uh, a lot less control and that in and of itself can become a stressor. So at this point, it's important to understand again, individual variants and nuance on where you find the most balance and how you can proverbially have your animal-based cake and eat it too. Because for me, travel is about living life. For me, travel is about enjoying certain cultures and their cuisines and their customs and their people, which means that when I plant myself in these places, that I will be more open to trying foods that at home I wouldn't usually eat. And the reason that I'm confident doing that is I don't see one poor choice in terms of what I'm eating that does or does not support my goals as having to be throwing the whole baby out with the bathwater. Like when I was in Spain, they were doing these delicious fresh baked baguettes for a euro each. I do not eat that stuff at home. It's not worth it for me. I suffer pretty intensely from consuming gluten. I also know it's not supportive of me in any way. And the mouth pleasure that I might get from a bit of crunchy bread is just not worth it. However, there's a little bit of a shift when I go to Spain and I want to try this thing and my family's eating it and I just want to let loose a little bit to flex my 20. And which when I'm referring to the 20, there is kind of this 80-20 principle that I encourage a lot of people to live from because health is about balance. It's not about just being strict and not enjoying life and truly that what you do most matters most. And most of the time, if my year or my years are stretched out that 80% of the time, I'm making really great choices that are aligned with my goals and supportive of my metabolism and building habits and all of that fun stuff, that not only do I give myself a permission slip to enjoy the 20 when it arrives, but also I've built the resilience to be able to enjoy the 20 without it destroying me. And what I mean by that is, if, if I am in a healthy body that's resilient and has good digestion, that I, I have done this to build the capacity that if I do encounter a little bit of gluten or a little bit of seed oil at the local restaurant, that it's not going to send me into this, this downward spiral of complete inflammation and being wrecked and not being able to have a proper bowel movement or having a huge flare-up. Now, depending on where you're at on your health journey, you might need to be a little bit more strict because some people are healing from very serious autoimmune conditions and you might know that that's off the table for you. But that is your balance point. That is your reference point. Like if you absolutely cannot be exposed to these foods because you know they will cause an extreme flare-up, then of course, it wouldn't be balanced to say, well, let's eat some bread. However, if you are doing this purely from a psychological standpoint of supporting your goals and being worried about your body composition, I want you to also consider the other factors that everything is healthy until it's not. And a lot of people can have an unhealthy relationship with health. They can have this orthorexic view of food. And I can speak to this with a lot of experience because I did for a long time. 
It wasn't that long ago on my journey where I would have gone to Spain and I would have been reluctant to try anything. I wouldn't have even had a bite of that local croissant or I wouldn't have had a little bit of the crusty baguette at breakfast because, oh, that's gluten and gluten damages the gut. And those things are still objectively true. But now I can have those, enjoy it, and know that what I do the most matters most. It doesn't turn me into a sugar monster. It doesn't turn me into a bread monster. And I've built the physical resilience in my, in, in my body now to not be affected by that food as much. A caveat here, which is interesting, and an anecdotal story that we hear a lot of the time too, is that people will often go to Europe, for example, and eat a lot of the things that they don't usually eat because they go to Italy and they adopt this mindset that I'm talking about. I'm, I'm in Italy, it's the food capital of the world. It's pizza, it's pasta, it's wine. It's basically all of the foods that we know if you eat regularly at home, not going to be supportive of your metabolic health. Yet what's a very interesting story so often is I ate those foods and they didn't seem to bother me the same way they bothered me at home. I didn't come back 10 pounds heavier. Sometimes I came back at the same weight or sometimes I even lost weight. So what's going on there? I think a couple of things. I think number one, food quality is different in the EU. Um, for me, having a sensitivity to gluten that I really feel if I ever eat it at home, which is so rare now that I don't do it because it's not worth it. But eating these things in a different country, not in excessive amounts, but in a small kind of microdose fashion and feeling no ill effects points at something. Either that the genetic modification of the wheat that we use in the United States is very different, this dwarf wheat that it's been referred to in the past, or the use of herbicides, pesticides, rodenticides, fungicides, things like glyphosate that we spray in abundance on U.S. crops versus is more tightly regulated in the EU might have a really big part to play in the story of why people can eat certain foods in a different country that they would be wrecked by in this country. But food quality aside, I also think that it's the lifestyle, right? We forget that when we go to somewhere like Europe, there is this accidental inbuilt movement in life that is very rare in the United States in terms of just the baseline level of walking. I was looking at my steps when I was over there and I wasn't even trying to be conscious of this. I was just curious. And I was accidentally racking up 15,000 steps every single day just by virtue of being in a place that's a little more walkable and walking to the store and then walking back and walking to the park and walking to the beach. And all of a sudden, when you're walking around, you see other people walking. And if I go for a walk here, I don't see anybody walking unless I go to a trail and I actively go to those places that, but everything is so big and everything is so spread out that we drive everywhere. And if I'm not conscious of it at home and I've had a busy day of coaching calls or podcast prep or whatever it is, I look at my steps at the end of the day and I might have 2000 steps. It's like a pathetic amount of steps. And all of a sudden here in Europe, accidentally, I was at 15,000 steps. So we have this food quality piece over here, but we also have walking is an amazing exercise. I know it's not often seen that way because it's not that sexy and doesn't burn that many calories. And it's not, you know, the, the handstand walks or the backflips, but walking is probably the most underrated exercise you could imagine. It's so good for the system. It's good for your blood sugar regulation. It's good for your insulin sensitivity. It's good for the nervous system. It's good for the brain. You think about how it's habit stacked with all of these other healthy behaviors like fresh air and sunlight. It's great for digestion after a meal. And usually on holiday, you're walking home after eating the big meal. So all of these things probably play into the factor as well that people will go away eat foods they don't usually eat and come back feeling great. And there's maybe an invitation to look at your behaviors at home and how can you mirror more of that vacation mentality, not from choosing foods that don't serve you, but from the movement aspect of some of those behaviors that really offset the potential damage that you could be doing if you didn't have that built in. 
So I think about the three S's when I'm traveling. And the three S's are steps, sun and stress. Steps we just discussed. You, you will get so many more steps when you are in traveler mode and you drop yourself in a European city or you go to Asia because you're exploring and you're just going to use those beautiful legs of yours and your feet and you're going to cover so much ground. And all of the benefits we just spoke about are kind of baked into the cake of the increasing of the steps. Number two, the second S is sun. Usually, we're vacationing in places where there is more natural sun. And we know the sun feels so good. And we know that vitamin D is so important. And we are getting it. But we often forget as well that the sun increases our digestion again. It increases our insulin sensitivity. It encourages to be outside. And our body and our systems work so much better. And the final S, which is cumulative of the previous two S's and the lifestyle and the permission slip often when we go on vacation is stress piece or the lack thereof. When we're at home, there's a lot of stress inbuilt into just being a human. There's so much to do. There's always this relentless task of things that need doing and completing. And all of a sudden, when we go on vacation, maybe the only thing that you have to do is decide what waterfall you're going to go visit today or what time you need to make the ferry to go on this beautiful cruise to go see the caves or go to the beach. So you can see the baseline level of stress is massively cut in half. And if we focus on those three S's when we travel, this is what creates maybe more wiggle room or resiliency in our travel plans for having a little bit more flex of that 20 so that we can go there and enjoy the local cuisine and enjoy the local culture and eat foods that maybe otherwise we wouldn't be eating, which is exactly the case for me over these last two weeks. I came back and I got right back to my routine, right back to my animal-based diet and way of eating. And I still kept that as the framework why I was there. This idea, again, of failing to prepare was built in because every day I would go to the local market, I would get eggs, I would get prosciutto, I would get some good raw cheese from this little kind of deli, and I would create a really nutrient-dense, protein-forward breakfast, and I would know that that kind of was my framework. Now, when I'm going out to the restaurants and navigating menus, I'm still looking for the same things that I'm looking for over here. I'm looking for the protein forward options. I'm looking for the ruminant animals. I'm looking for the fresh fish, or I'm looking for the veal, or I'm looking for the lamb chops. And I'm also having a lot more peace of mind, especially in a place like Spain, Mallorca, one of the biggest exporters of olives, that they're using a lot of olive oil <laughs> and not a lot of seed oils. So sometimes as well, I know this may sound crazy, but if you want to plan a vacation, maybe planning it in a place where a lot of these things are going to be taken care of by accident would be very smart. You know, sadly, I, I have traveled Asia a bunch. I spent, you know, four years backpacking in and out of Asia. And one of the things that became apparent is they'd switched over to seed oils relatively recently from coconut oil because coconut oil over here in the developed West had gotten so popular that they started to ship out all of the coconut oil and they were left with the cheap kind of nasty seed oils that we know we're not a fan of. And that was sad because you could see there that usually in Asia, not that long ago, everything is cooked in coconut oil and it's all local and the chicken is the backyard chicken. And the grain, the only grain, is rice. It's relatively benign. There's not a bunch of breads. And now all of a sudden, those things get shipped off. And now the processed foods come in and the seed oils come in. And what happens to the health of those nations when that starts to happen? 
as it starts to decline and the obesity starts to go up. But you can choose wisely. You can go to these places where you're more in the Mediterranean and you know that they're using high quality ingredients and maybe that's a smart move. So think about where you're choosing to vacation. How are you going to choose a place that's going to get you the appropriate amount of sun? So you can manage those S's. You can get your steps. You can get your sun. You can lower the stress and go and enjoy life. And then still navigate and, and make choices that are not purely about completely letting go of your foundation, complete debauchery and ordering all of the things that you know are not going to serve you because now you're going to have to do a lot more damage control when you come back. So again, always just framing this through this lens of balance and 80-20. That what you do the most matters most. So if your vacation of two weeks a year is where you flex your 20 and then the other, whatever that leaves, 52 weeks of the year, you're pretty dialed in on your animal-based diet, then don't sweat it too much because that stress is costly. You know, even if you're eating all of the right foods, but you're stressed out about every micro management of the bite of food and every order and, oh, what oil are they using? And is there some sneaky this, that, and the other in these foods? That is also not healthy too. So that this mentality of relaxation and enjoyment and getting into the flow of life is really important when it comes to travel too. So hopefully we've covered some ground there in terms of how to navigate the airport and movement. I think just generally lots of steps in the uh, airport is very important, some mobility. And you can stretch that out again onto the plane. I am not afraid to go to the back of the plane where there's more space and do the same things that I was saying I would do in the airport lounge. I will drop into a squat. I'll mobilize and I'll do some squat twists. I'll get that T-spine moving. I'll have a little chit-chat to the air hostesses back there. I'll be friendly so they don't think I'm just some crazy person at the back of the plane. Another thing that I'll do is... Um, maybe this is is too extreme for you, but these are just ideas and options. I set my alarm to go off once an hour and I would go into the bathroom and I would do 50 box squats and the box was the toilet. So I'd put the seat down on the toilet and I'd squat down until my butt hit the toilet and I'd come up and I'm just trying to keep the lymph flowing. I'm trying to keep the blood flow flowing because if you've ever seen maybe your feet feel swollen, your legs feel swollen after travel, it's just all of that blood pooling in those places. So I'm keeping this circulation up. When I arrive again, the first thing I'm trying to do is how can we get outside quickly? How can I get natural light quickly? How can I ground myself to the earth at this local time and shake some of that off? And, and movement and, and, and these other factors all play in here. So navigating the airport, opting out of the rapi scan, going for the pat down, finding yourself a baby that you can walk through security with so you naturally get that fast pass and bypass through that. And then navigating once you land of trying to figure out how can I maximize the enjoyment out of this experience through being smart about it, a little bit of preparation, also a little bit of permission to enjoy some of the foods that I don't usually eat. Maybe that's a little baked good from the famous bakery. Like I said, a, a fresh baked baguette that hopefully doesn't hurt you as much as it might here because of the mindset around it and the stress management techniques, but also the lifestyle factors that are baked into the cake when you prioritize your steps, your son, and your stress management. You're in a beautiful place with people that you love and you're having adventure. And as always, when the circadian disruption is there because of huge time zone shifts, you are just trying to regulate as much as you can by getting yourself in tune with that local time zone as quickly as possible. So if this means setting your alarm early when you want to sleep, it's going to be worth the sacrifice that first day to lock yourself in, to ground, to spend as much time outside as possible, get in that sunshine, get in that natural light, and getting into those routines and habits at the local time zone to smooth your arrival so you can enjoy your 
trip and spend less time groggy, tired, and always wanting a nap. So travel is very fun. I hope you have got some travels lined up this summer, and I hope there's some tips here that you can use to navigate the airports, to navigate time changes, and to have some fun and not beat yourself up too badly when you slip up or you don't eat foods that are technically animal-based. Because, as always, what you do most matters most. And we do this health thing to enjoy life, not to be a prisoner to our diet or a prisoner to all of these wonderful things that we talk about, but ultimately to have them so that we can be free, free to enjoy, free to find new cultures and find new adventures and achieve our why and also have those healthy habits built into that along the way. So go travel, book a flight if you don't have one. We all need it. Let's go find a beach, go explore. And as always, we now have some guest callers. Uh, we've got David on the phone calling from Georgia. David, are you with us, my friend? What can I help you with today? Hey, Steve. Yeah, I'm here. How's it going? It's going well, man. How are you? I am doing very well. Thank you so much for having me on the cast. Um, so I recently found out that I carry a copy of the Apo E4 gene. Yeah. Uh, so my question is, how can somebody uh, with uh, Apo E4 adopt or perhaps adapt the animal-based diet? Yeah, it, it, it's a good question, David. Thanks for asking it. I think there's a a lot of fear around this. Um, maybe rightly so, because if you look at observationally speaking, with this uh, allele, this single nucleotide polymorphism of APO4, that we see an increased risk of things like dementia. And that's really scary, right? The big D is probably one of the scariest things that we can potentially think about as humans, losing our faculties, losing our memories. Um, Paul, actually, Paul Saladino has done pretty good deep dives on this, who would be more able to speak to the intricacies around the unique physiology and, and how this really manifests and what's going on. But I'll be able to add a more of a zoomed out perspective that, of course, not a doctor, consult your doctor around all of this stuff, those usual caveats. But the animal-based diet is ultimately designed to remove inflammation, restore insulin sensitivity, address the elephant in the room around a lot of this stuff, especially when it comes to cognitive and neurodegenerative things, which is insulin resistant, oxidative stress, and you know brain health, brain being that it's made predominantly of cholesterol, and that the fats that we eat in our diet really do matter. And if we remove the polyunsaturated fats that we, we, we are what we eat, and they become the body's uh, kind of store of fat, and they become this kind of store of oxidative stress and oxidation and inflammation. And if we displace those with saturated fats, uh, the fats that we find in animals and animal-based products, that they're more stable, that they're also more nutrient-dense. But that's where the fear arises, because in the standard kind of narratives around, okay, you have the APOE4 gene, maybe you need to be more aware of saturated fat and cholesterol because this whole myth is that these foods can increase your risk of these neuro issues. Um, it seems to be that what really, where the rubber really hits the road here is again this oxidized LDL piece and this inflammation piece. And if we conduct a properly formulated animal-based diet that will be rich in cholesterol foods and will be rich in saturated fat foods that on one hand were disobeying the rules that would commonly be given, but we're simultaneously attacking the real issue here, which is we're keeping inflammation low. A body that's not inflamed would not have an inflamed brain, would not see these neurons and, and these toxin buildup and the compromised blood-brain barrier and all of the issues that could lead to these things down the line. Now, 
would you potentially have a case here for tracking this stuff a little more closely for getting a bit deeper dive panels, uh, you know, blood lipids and also fasting insulin and checking in on this a little more regularly than a person that maybe had ApoE2 or 3, which is more common. I think there's a case to be made that you could more so than anything else to put your mind at ease to really see if you do have um, altered saturated fat metabolism, which means when you're eating saturated fats that you're seeing your LDL number completely skyrocket. Again, this usually does happen. When we eat more saturated fat, LDL will jump, but that's not oxidized LDL. And that's a big thing that we need to look at because we can't be sure that just an increase in LDL is causative of these neurodegenerative issues or these um, cardiovascular disease events either. It seems to be much more intricate than that and much more about this oxidation process. And if your insulin sensitivity is being addressed, as it almost certainly will be on an animal-based diet and your body's getting more efficient at handling blood sugar and insulin and it's clearing up micronutrient deficiencies and the body is running as it should, it would put my mind at ease that I'm doing the ideal diet in light of this kind of revelation that I have the ApoE4 than being worried about the fact that, okay, I, I eat some of these animal products and these seem to be the things that I'm steered away from. Because I think, from my standpoint at least, that this inflammation piece is the biggest piece to this, this insulin resistance and inflammation. And I think the diet that you're on right now is going to be very helpful there for, uh, for addressing that and also doing a little more tracking there. So, David, let me know any follow-up thoughts there. Have you been doing blood work? And I'd also be curious to know about your animal-based journey so far. Like, wh what's been happening and how are you feeling and what are you noticing or seeing so far? Is this a new endeavor for you? Have you been doing it for a while? Yeah, so I actually started on the animal-based diet probably some nine months ago, mm -hmm. and uh, that actually led me to want to go get additional testing mm -hmm. to uh, you know figure out how it was affecting my body personally, and uh, you know did a wide range of tests. And during those tests, that's actually when I found out that I carried the apo mm -hmm. uh, apo e four, and uh, you know was kind of told about the you know the concerns with you know, my cholesterol levels were, were higher mm -hmm. and that was to be expected outside of that, you know, all of my other metrics were, uh, you know, fairly good, uh, you know, uh, you know, for, for the most part. And, uh, this was an adjustment that I needed to make. And since then, you know, fortunately things like, uh, heart liver are still, you know, uh, for the most part pretty lean. Mm -hmm. Um, so I can still keep my fat, um, the amount of fat that I'm consuming down, um, but I, I've, uh, you know, kind of pivoted to, you know, more gravitate more towards fruit, uh, Greek yogurt, um, lean protein as much as possible. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been able to kind of, uh, adapt the diet a bit myself. Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, what kind of, uh, tips, tips you might have for me as well. Yeah. Okay, cool. So one, one hypothesis with this Apple E4 story, um, which is really interesting is that the, you, you'll have higher baseline lipids, um, plasma, cholesterol, because ApoE4 carriers don't have an efficient take-up of it. Um, and, and, and it's kind of like a compensatory mechanism from the body. So there's an argument to be made that you actually need more if the inefficient conversion is happening. Because what we do know about cholesterol, because it's always like the pin the tail on the bad guy cholesterol donkey. And it's always this, oh, you know, cholesterol always bad, LDL always bad. The cholesterol is also very well documented as neuroprotective. 
it's it's the ratios it's the oxidation of ldl it's these other things that are causing the problem not not cholesterol in and of itself like we know that the brain needs cholesterol it's it's something that carries the fuel to it it's it's protective the brain actually makes its own cholesterol and maybe in apple we fall we need to see that number increase because of this uh unique and down regulated conversion rate so this is where I would I would get on YouTube after this and I would look at um, Dr. Paul's stuff on this because not too recently there was the whole Chris Hemsworth thing with Peter Atia. They found out he had, you know, multiple, you know, copies of this gene. The, it was clipped down on social media to look really crazy. He was telling him he had a X amount. It was huge, like a 50% increase of potentially having dementia and, and it went really viral and it got people very scared. And I think there's just a lot more nuance to these questions as usual than, than we find. And I think that there are different hypotheses and there's people challenging this and ultimately not losing sight of. You may you may have this and you can use this information to empower you in order to maybe be extra motivation for living a, a radically healthy life. That you can pull on these different levers and tweak your fat numbers and, and see where you feel best. But ultimately knowing that you're already doing about the best thing that you could be doing, knowing that you have this and even thinking about the future of being healthier and keeping that inflammation low and eating foods that are supportive of your cognitive abilities and capacities, as well as keeping and addressing insulin resistance and building a body that is resilient. Now, I know you mentioned liver and heart there. Are you eating those in the real food form? Are you doing desiccated organ supplements? What are you doing from an organ standpoint? Uh, right now, I'm uh, for the most part, I'm on the heart and soil supplements. If cool. I can find quality uh, liver and heart, I'll buy it. Um, but it's, it's difficult to come by unless I'm going to a specific uh, location to get that. Okay, cool. Have you tried mood, memory, and brain before? Uh, I'm not. That's not one of the supplements that, I, that I'm currently on. But, okay. Uh, yeah, we're going to get you Yeah, we're going to get you a free bottle of Mood Memory and Brain. I think this energy we talk about a lot this like for like eating foods that are supportive of those organs when we think about the brain, of course. It's very, very difficult to come by a brain and you have a bunch of, you know, fear mongering again about prions and things like that. So our, you know, supplement mood, memory and brain has brain in it. It's got these compounds for brain, the EPA, the DHA, the phosphatidylcholines. Um, it, it could be a really cool supplement to add into your stack here because it sounds like otherwise you've got a lot of your bases covered. And it sounds like you're a, a good old citizen scientist. You know, you're doing the right research. You're looking at the right things. I would just now, if I was in your position, I would add that in. We're going to get you a free bottle so you can get that into the the routine and then i would just continue to seek alternative opinions and not be so wedded to the mainstream narrative of what this apple e4 actually means because remember being an animal based already kind of means that you're disobeying a lot of the mainstream advice around diet anyway and this extension of the apple e4 basically is 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 really increasing your risk of uh, of you know alzheimer's or dementia is part of that standard advice and we know that it's not always the case and there's a lot more to the story that's going on in healthy people and that maybe this becomes some kind of an advantage in healthy people it's it's often called the ancestral apoe4 adaptation so it's an unfolding story we're learning more and more about it every day but it sounds like you're in the right place and i think with the addition of mood memory and brain and just informing yourself and empowering yourself with as much information as you can you're in a pretty good spot david so best of luck continuing your journey enjoy enjoy that new supplement and let's keep that brain sharp because we all need it for the long run so thank you mate and next up we have alex from north carolina question about insulin resistance sensitivity what is going on alex hi yes thank you so much for having me on so my question is i am insulin resistant currently mm -hmm. and i've been eating a low carb diet 
um, I want to move more toward animal-based. Mm-hmm. And so when eating an animal-based diet to heal, should I incorporate fruit or wait until my insulin resistance abates? Yeah. Okay, cool. Where, what what does this low-carb journey look like for you so far? You said been low-carb-ish. How long? And you want to evolve maybe more so to an animal-based diet. So give me a little context around this journey so far. Yes. So I have been low-carb for about probably four or five years. Okay. And am also incorporate fasting, intermittent fasting, which certainly helps. Um, so just looking to move more toward animal-based, we take the heart and soil supplements, a number of them, mm-hmm. and have for about a year. And just I know that's going to get me kind of over the threshold. I was pre-diabetic for probably 10 to 20 years mm-hmm. when I was younger. And so it's just taking a while. Yeah. Do you know you're insulin resistant based off like tracking through blood lipids and, and, and that kind of stuff? What's the story there? Yes, I get my A1C checked. I also use a CGM periodically. Okay. So. Yeah, cool. All right, so you're in a good spot. Have you found when you're using the continuous glucose monitor as well, have you experimented with fruits before? Have you been a little bit wary of that being more kind of, if you're super low carb, like more keto? I know sometimes the fear, especially when there's been a history of insulin resistance is, you know, all carbs bad because sugar is sugar is sugar and insulin resistance and the inability to metabolize glucose, et cetera. So I'm curious if you've even played with this a little bit and and have you seen anything on the continuous glucose monitor that's been a red flag or this is kind of, you know, looking for a little bit maybe of a permission slip to get into these waters? Yes. So exactly what you said. I certainly have fear around it. I have incorporated berries and strawberries will sometimes impact my glucose Mm -hmm. a little more than like blueberries and Mm -hmm. I'm just so I have it so ingrained in my mind to not let those spikes occur yeah so there is great fear around trying you know like mangoes for example yeah yeah here's the thing I I think glucose spikes are normal I think they are very normal in a healthy individual to see glucose spikes now we could always talk about the extremes you know if your glucose excursions are huge and you know you're shooting north of 200 and you're staying there for a very prolonged period of time then that's not normal and that does indicate something but you know bumps in blood glucose that return back to baseline within an hour or two hour of eating are completely normal and completely indicative of a healthy metabolism it's what you would see in mine paul's talked about this a bunch on his podcast that this idea that we always want to have it as level as possible and never really seeing these excursions is maybe something that's keeping us a prism more mentally than than anything else because of that stress piece. And, you know, these other things that you talked about, you know, the IF, incredible tool, until it's not. You know, the, the, the low-carb, incredible tool, until it's not. We, we know that there, with long-term ketogenic diets, for example, we can kind of pigeonhole ourselves into a physiological insulin resistance, which doesn't really make sense because how could we become insulin resistant when we're not eating anything that spikes insulin? It's because it becomes a... a, 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 a a kind of protective mechanism to really become insulin resistant to reserve the small amount of glucose that we are getting either through gluconeogenesis or through the small amount of carbohydrates in our diet to really get it to the tissues that need it the most, like the brain um, or the red blood cells, for example. And that that stress can actually be one of the biggest causes of insulin resistance in and of itself. And that although it may seem counterproductive, when you classically look at insulin resistance, which you could say is a glucose metabolism issue to eat more glucose or fructose or or carbohydrates in general. But actually that that 
is less stressful on the body because it doesn't signal this constant environment of scarcity that evolutionarily speaking again, yeah, there were certainly times that we would be much more ketogenic and much more carnivore and just hunting what we could get because there is no fruits uh, at certain times of the year. But we don't live in those times anymore. And life is very stressful as it is anymore. And maybe carbohydrates, the right kinds, like you're talking about mangoes and strawberries and berries, that those are the foods that signal more of an abundance from the body and don't necessarily make insulin resistant worse. Like there's that famous study that gets thrown around a lot in this space when we look at honey given to diabetic patients and you get into increasing amounts of honey being able to give to diabetic insulin resistant patients and you cannot make the diabetes worse. You cannot make their insulin resistance worse and you get into really high amounts of honey. So that would break the theory a little bit. And then you, you know, extrapolate that down and you think about foods that come from nature, which is like fruits and things like that. It's very different than saying, oh yeah, you know, Alex, just go start eating loads of pasta and breads because they also are concurrent with the inflammation. But I'm not convinced anymore. Um, and, and I was of this thinking for a long time too, Alex. So it's been an evolution of my thinking and the team here and, and kind of this whole animal-based diet to be a little bit more carb friendly. That actually, if anything, I think improves insulin sensitivity as opposed to making it worse. So I kind of just threw a lot at you there, but how, how's that sitting <laughs> with you? And, you know, does that bring up any, any extra questions? No, that, that does make sense. And I have heard Dr. Paul mention that before. And I just, I kept thinking to myself, well, you're metabolically healthy and I'm not. So <laughs> I yeah. don't know if I need to wait. But, um, yeah, I think I can certainly, like you said, just try it out with the CGM and see. I, I definitely don't get spikes that are above 200. So um, right. maybe I'll I start with a half a banana or something. I don't know if I'm ready for the honey, but maybe <laughs> I'll give it a try. Yeah. Yeah, baby steps, you know, baby steps. <laughs> Look, not, not everybody is to, to the to the Paul example, not everybody's surfing for two hours a day and not everybody needs 250 grams of carbohydrates. That's 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 obvious. But it's it's I think it's fair to say that we need a little bit and we can we can assess that through the fact that if we don't get any, the body will make it anyway. So that that can be an argument that's used on both sides, right? Like, well we don't need any carbohydrates, they're non essential because the body can make it, which can, which is really cool actually, when you think about it. But at the same time, if the body is going out of its way to make the glucose that it does need through gluconeogenesis, which could be argued that it is stressful and it's taxing on the body, that why don't we just subvert that process and give it what it needs by starting with a half a banana and seeing what happens and being like, okay, well, the world didn't come crumbling down. I didn't add a bunch of weight and I'm feeling good. So maybe that becomes a whole banana and maybe that becomes a little serving of fruit at each meal. And now what we're doing is we're, we're signaling again, abundance to the body, the psychological stress, which is a huge issue here. Not many people give it much kind of credence in this conversation because we can't see it we can't hold it. it's not tangible but again stress is stress is stress and it informs the body the, the scarcity and that slows the metabolism down and that will do weird things to insulin resistance and do weird things to blood glucose so i would say just you, you have to baby step your way into this i'm not going to sit here and say okay well alex here's what you've got to do go away and start eating 200 grams of carbohydrates because that wouldn't be wise but i think to just slowly kind of ease your way back into this and diversify your plate and enjoy it a little bit more. And I, I can only see potential benefits from including a little bit more of this, um, you know, these abundant carbohydrates.
carbohydrates in your diet. And if fruit seems a little bit scary, steer more towards something like raw dairy because we still have, you know, um, carbohydrates in there in the form of the lactose sugars or raw cheese has a very minimal amount, but raw dairy has a pretty decent amount and the yogurts and the fruits and, and the dates. And, you know, who knows down the line, you may be crazy enough to, you know, enjoy a, a wider variety of foods without keeping your blood sugars in a very healthy um, you know, range and having those natural excursions. And I guess my last question for you too, to also facilitate this process is what's the movement practices like? What's the daily level of walking like? Are we doing any resistance training? Because those things can be so, so powerful in this story as well. Yeah, I, I definitely do. I, I do Pilates on a regular basis, and I, pr I don't get as many steps as I need to, certainly not 15,000 a day, but I do right. get around 5,000. I can certainly up my movement more. I know walking, you know, after meals is super important, and I appreciate the yeah. mindset around the scarcity and abundance because I had not thought about it that way. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, um, like I said, again, it's often undervalued. And I think it's a lot bigger than we often give it credit for. So that might be just, you know, that just understanding that healing takes time. Like you said, you were pre-diabetic and insulin resistant for a long time, but the body wants to come back to balance. It wants to come back to health. And you've got to provide the appropriate signals, not just through the food, but through mindset. And and maybe this stress piece is is holding you back in some ways, as it as it is for a lot of people. And because we can't see it, because we're not putting it in our mouths, and we think it's just up here that it can't be affecting us but but it is so maybe that's you know increasing those steps and you know getting outside and, and being outside more or breathing practices or an introspective practice or prioritizing that sleep more sunlight more things that put you in flow and joy you know being out going to extra pilates going to a dance class hanging out with your friends these other little things that um you know are not diet tips per se but increase the quality of the human nervous system, if you will. And that healthy nervous system is probably the greatest flex on the planet imaginable. There's nothing more valuable than a regulated nervous system. And a regulated nervous system also will have a healthy metabolism because the body is not constantly in this fight, flight, or freeze response. It's in more of a state of abundance, more of this parasympathetic rest and digest, heal, assimilate, grow, repair. And I think a lot of times that we we just get stuck because life can't be so stressful. So yeah, 5,000 steps a day is, is good. I think uh, setting a healthy little challenge for yourself to see that number move up to, let's shoot for like 7,500 steps a day for a little bit. And maybe naturally you start to then be like, I actually really enjoy this walk in lack. And now maybe I'm at 10,000 steps. Again, small, small improvements in these uh, little habits will go a long way. It's, it's this little by little becomes a lot kind of philosophy. So, you know, keep the Pilates up. That's amazing. Increase the steps a little bit. Um, you know, if you want peace of mind around, okay, I'm trying to increase my carbohydrate intake from fruit. Maybe that's where you do the post walk and that will allow you to just kind of have a little bit more peace with that. And uh, it sounds like you're already doing some heart and soil desiccated organ supplements. So which one's been your favorite so far, Alex? Yeah, so we, t I like the bone and liver, and we take beef mm -hmm. organs, the histamine, and immune, and then my husband takes the whole package. Okay, awesome. So you got a pretty good stack there. Let's get you a, uh, 
what should we get you? Uh, skin her nails. Let's get you one of those for free as well to just really just diversify that stack and get you some good support elsewhere. Alex, I appreciate you calling in and, um, you know, just good luck on the rest of your healing journey. You're well on your way. And here's the permission slip that you were looking for to, you know, diversify that plate a little bit more. And yeah, look at the look at the stressful elephant in the room. Thank you for calling in. All right, friends, that is it for the show. Like I said, I hope you have some adventures planned for this summer, or if you're listening to this at some point in the future, I hope you have adventures planned all the time because vacationing and holidaying is a lot of fun uh, if we allow it to be, if we don't stress ourselves out too much in the process. So take some of those ideas, run with them, see what you can do, go seek adventure, go live your why and not sacrifice your healthy habits along the way. And we will see you next time. Thanks for being a part of this journey. Woo. All right, friends, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Radical Health Radio. We got a fresh new podcast for you every Wednesday. If you enjoyed the show, consider liking, subscribing, reviewing, and rating us on your podcast platform. It helps to spread this message of radical health. We'll see you next week.